Cinema St. Louis's The Lens is now thetakeup.com, a place to gather after the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and fear not, all your favorite episodes of The Lens featuring all your favorite guests are still here in your feed, just a little refocused. Stay subscribed to us here for future episodes, and you can follow along for new ones and more at the Takeup STL. Thank you for joining us on The Lens, a Cinema St. Louis podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, programmer and critic. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Kayla McCullough, critic, programmer, social media manager. Hey, Kayla. Hi. And Andrew Wyatt, critic, programmer, and managing editor of Cinema St. Louis' film site, The Lens. Hey, Andrew. Hello. While you can find all of our words at The Lens on cinemastlouis.org, here we focus on one underloved or underseen film every other week. First, we're going to talk about what's now showing. Then we'll focus on Peppermint Frappe, my pick for the Can Winners series. Then in the rules of the game, we return to IMDb to find out who some can winners are known for. Finally, we'll have just one more thing. All right, it's kind of a week, week, a week, week, a week, couple of weeks for new releases. However, we're coming through with some, uh, maybe some recommendations, maybe not. First, we're going to go to Andrew because you've just seen a couple of horror films. It, anyone who doesn't know, Andrew Wyatt is the horror master and does not to pin you on, pin this on you for this year, Andrew. But every year ranks like every horror film from, you know, bargain basement bin crap, which I think you would call it too, right, Andrew? Uh, yeah, I watch a lot of crap. I didn't do it last year. I didn't do it last year for various reasons. Um, so right. now you've like committed me to doing it for this year. Thanks. Oh, but there's so much stuff, including the two you just saw, which are which ones? Um, so these are films I think that had some festival buzz and they're just now finally arriving on VOD. One is The Innocence, a Norwegian film, and another is a Finnish film called Hatching. Um, it's a little hard to describe, actually. It's, if it has one thing going for it, it's a sort of, um, bizarre blend of genres. So the premise is that a 12 year old girl discovers an egg in the forest. And this is like a, just a mod modern day suburban Finland where her mom is like an influencer. If you give us to give you a, a sense for where like the show satire is pitched, this 11 year old girl finds a, uh, egg, egg out in the forest and she brings it home and tries to care for it. And it grows enormous and then hatches a monster. It's the only way to describe it, a bird person thing that then she has to kind of like keep secret in her house it is a very obvious uh, like speaking of like turning red this is the year of like the period monster movies it's a very obvious period metaphor but sort of sits at this weird intersection of like horror psychological horror and body horror and satire it doesn't entirely work for me i think it's a little too i don't know the metaphor is a little too on the nose the humor is a little too broad but the parts that are sort of horror movie adjacent are really effective. It uses a lot of really awesome practical creature effects, which you don't see much anymore. Actress plays the lead. She does a pretty awesome job uh, for a child actress in a very difficult role. It requires to act against a puppet. Uh, she's pretty good. It didn't do a whole lot for me. I know that there was some buzz around it at, at the festivals. I also saw a Norwegian film called The Innocence that I liked a lot more. 
this is a film by one of uh, Joachim Trier's collaborators, mm. Eskil Vogt, I think it's Vogt is his name. He actually wrote, he has written the screenplays or co-written the screenplays for a few of Trier's films, including, I believe he contributed to Worst Person in the World recently, and also to Thelma, which I think is the most salient comparison here because it, this has some similarities to Thelma. It's about four children in a Norwegian like apartment complex who discover that they have some sort of weird psychic powers, but really only make that discovery because the four of them sort of converge and come together one summer. Has some sort of Stephen King vibes to it, but just done spectacularly effectively. A very moody Nordic horror sort of thing. Also breaks some really horrifying like movie tab horror movie taboos, things that you're not supposed to do in show in horror films, which I think is uh, always a good thing. The, the extremist in me likes that. Oh, I um, kind of want to know at least one. <laughs> Can I know at least one? Yeah, I don't think this constitutes a spoiler because I'm not going to say who it involves. A parent murders their own child on screen. Ah, which okay, is well, horrific. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, um, I don't, I, yeah, I don't but, know. But I, I like, it's very good. I liked it a lot. It's, um, it does exactly what Thelma does really well. And I think that Dr. Sleep did really well, which is show how all X-Men stories are basically horror stories at bottom. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so if you're, if you like like psychic horror, it, it has a little bit of a Cronenberg vibe too, kind of in that dead zone space where like, if you're freaked out by psychic horror, um, it's definitely going to be your thing. Very cool. I think I need to check it out. <laughs> Maybe with my, you know, with the lights on. Yeah, with the lights on, especially the parent murdering the child. Oh no. Um, I'm very afraid of that. Something that I am uh, not really afraid of. I'm so sorry, y'all. I'll quit with the segues that are so stupid. Uh, <laughs> I might actually be I think a little. It's your brand. It is kind of my brand. I might be a little afraid of Fire Island, <laughs> just because it, it seems like an awful thing to do. If uh, you know, if you're not gonna remove all of the cultural context around it, which the film Fire Island that I'm talking about is actually pretty uh, sharp and smart when it comes to cultural context. It is written by Joel Kim Booster, the kind of up-and-coming comedian, Twitter star, directed by Andrew Ahn, who directed Spa Night, kind of uh, lo-fi, queer indie, and then made Driveways, which was a film that got Brian Dennehy a, a little bit of buzz before, or did it come out after his death? It was around his death. We were talking a little bit before recording that Driveways, Andrew recommended it and said it was kind of a, a low-key character, character study. This is a high-key character study. It, it Besides Joel Kim Booster, it stars Bowen Yang from SNL, Margaret Cho, Matt Rogers, and just like a, a ton of popular comedians. But they're a group of friends, late 20s, early 30s, who go for their very last time, their annual summer trip to Fire Island. Now, for people out there who don't know, Fire Island is a historic queer gathering zone. I'll just call it a gay gathering zone. As the film points out, it's mostly just like cis men and living, you know, they're 
most crazy fantasies out there. But the film, while it's very sharp and very funny, is is really smart about the stratification of the gay community based upon class and race and the body and all these different ways that intersectionality affects this group of friends. It is ostensibly Pride and Prejudice, which there's a nod to early in the film. I don't, <laughs> all of Jane Austen kind of blends in together in my head. Someone out there is really going to hate that I said that, but I'm sorry. But it is Joel Kim Booster is trying to get uh, Bo and Yang some action uh, because he is someone who's never had a boyfriend, someone who's a little bit more reserved. And Joel Kim Booster plays someone who is kind of the opposite of that. Of course, there's all kinds of romantic and sexual entanglements, we'll call it, and things get a little complicated, but I would definitely recommend it. I think it is something like Love, Simon, while that was like for teenagers and this probably isn't, it gets at something Love, Simon was kind of celebrated for, which I thought was false in bringing queer life to a typical mainstream film. This does that too. This is the road trip movie, but with a bunch of gay men and Margaret Cho. But this one, <laughs> <laughs> which honorary gay man, Margaret Cho, which, but it is complicated by all that social stratification that I was talking about. And that actually begins to dictate the complex complex plotting that happens within it. I am, I'm probably making it sound less fun than it is because it is an incredibly enjoyable film too. There's a scene where they all just kind of trade the random drugs that they've found. <laughs> and then what happens subsequently from that is really incredible, but that's going to be coming up on Hulu. So a lot of streamers out there for you. Well, that's going to be it for now showing because we've got a lot to talk about with our film by Carlos Saura, Peppermint Frappe, but we're going to start with a, a little, we're going to get an education. We've got guest Victor Poutinier coming on and he's going to talk about Can 1968 with us. A mí me parece muy bien que pasemos otro fin de semana juntos, pero tienes que ir con una chica. ¿De qué te ríes? Okay, here we are back to the Cannes Film Festival. And in the lens today, we're going to focus on Carlos Sara's Peppermint Frappe uh, 1968 film. Starring Geraldine Chaplin times two, maybe times three. We'll get into it. But first, I want to justify my choice. I do not play by the rules. However, I chose this one because I, I really wanted to talk about the 1968 Cannes Film Festival because it was centered around some political movements that were happening at the time. And in May of 1968, there was quite an uprising happening in France that 
can was sort of lumped into before I get ahead of myself, we actually have a special guest. We have Victor Poutinier. He is a PhD candidate at Washington University here in St. Louis in Francophone Studies and Film and Media Studies. Hi, Victor. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us because your field of study is actually it brings us up to this point. You work within French cinema, I believe yep. specifically documentary filmmaking and short filmmaking. You study a time period up to 1968. So it seemed like a, a perfect time to have you on. Can you sort of give us background on what you're studying? Um, so basically I'm working on the, what people call the long fifties. So from 1945 all the way up to 1968, which is this kind of really rich period for documentary cinema in France. And it's, it fits in very well with Can 1968, because that's the year where a lot of things change in doc, in film, French film in general, but also in the relationship to documentary cinema. And that's basically my a kind of turning point for me that I'm not going, I'm not going to focus afterwards because what happened in 68 was so big that like, it would be too complicated to make it, you know, something coherent. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of the end of my period and this kind of apotheosis of my period. Well, th then that brings us to the point that I, you know, I sort of have a cursory knowledge of what happened in May of 1968 in France and in particular what happened at that Cannes Film Festival. But as you point out, it's sort of a t turning point. What, why do you think that is and what led to it being that? So it was... Canada was kind of this weird moment in French political history, really, because a lot of things were happening like socially, politically in France as a whole, but also in the French film industry. And Cannes was kind of the way it revealed itself. Basically, one big thing that happened that year was uh, Henri Langlois, who was the, the founder of the French Cinematheque, was uh, fired from his position by uh, the French Minister of Culture. And that was so... That was such a big scandal that the entire French film industry was like, this is, we cannot allow that to happen up to the point where uh, Henri Langlois was actually reinstated in his role. He was brought back because the, the French government was like, we cannot, we cannot fight film people. They're too dangerous. And so that, <laughs> that, that happened between February and April and Ken was like a month after. So it was already very complicated for the film industry to be, to be, you know, calm politically speaking. And then there was a lot of things that were happening in Paris, but also throughout all of France, you had a lot of protests. On the one hand, you had the students who were protesting and the students were mostly rich people. It was still very, very, like being a student was still very, very bougie. But then you had also all the workers who started, who started like very broad general strikes and not just in cities where you had students, but also like throughout the entire French territory. And the thing is, Cannes started on Friday, May 10th. And, uh, that very same day, there was a really, really big, uh, student protest in Paris. And that's one of the most, that was, that's one of the early, earlier documented cases of police brutality in France, like filmed police brutality. And that was, uh, censored for like two days. And on Sunday 12th, the French, a big French union called for, uh, a, a general strike. So it was not just the students, but it was the French workers who were showing solidarity with workers, with, with students, sorry. And so that was 
happening right at the beginning of the Cannes Film Festival. And already before that, people were like, well, especially filmmakers uh, were like, maybe we should cancel it. I don't think it's a good idea. And producers were very much in this like for-profit kind of perspective that like, we're going we're gonna to use Cannes as a platform to sell our movies, no matter what's happening in France. And so for, for a while, Cannes was kind of this, you know, little, like two weeks of paradise where anything that happened outside didn't matter. And 68 was the year like French politics caught up to Canada. And eventually they were forced to cancel it because they couldn't, the festival didn't want to cancel it, but he didn't have a choice because everybody was on strike and couldn't go on. So uh, I know that one of the, the opening night film was a new restoration of Gone, Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> How awful on 70 millimeter. I thought that was fun. But as you pointed out, started to boil under while that was happening. And I think it was something like 11 films ended up showing out of the 30. It was eight out of 27. Eight they, out of 27. They stopped the, the festival started on the 10th and it stopped on the 19th, 10 days before it was supposed to end. So we had nine days of festivals, eight films without counting, uh, gone with the wind, mm. the, the competition, only eight were screened and like half of the ones that were screened were actually removed from the, <laughs> from the competition by the very filmmakers who were like, actually, you know what? I don't want that to happen. So yeah, understandably. And there were some people, so, and we should point out who some of these filmmakers are. They're not just, you know, random filmmakers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're talking about uh, Carlos Saura, the director of the film we're focusing on today, but who else was involved? Pretty much everybody. I mean, there was Anna René, uh, Milos Forman didn't want to be involved. Roman, uh, notably, Monica Vedi, Roman Polanski, Terence Young, and Louis Mal were part of the jury. They just resigned. Mm. Claude Lelouch is the one who, he, he was in a weird position uh, about him a little bit after, but there were also Godard, Jean-Luc Godard and François Truffaut who were very much at the forefront of the protest. They were the ones who were uh, organizing debates that would end up in fistfights to call for the cancellation of the festival. So I would say, yeah, Godard and Truffaut were really the, the kind of leaders of this call for the cancellation of the festival. How interesting. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think everyone would think of them as sort of the fathers of the new wave and of the films that they're sort of springing forth from that in this festival. But, but you know, I did read that Roman Polanski was sort of reticent to withdrawal because he thought some of the actions that people were doing were similar to what had happened in Poland. Yeah. So it gave him a, a bit of a flashback, but yeah. So it's really interesting. I, I did not really know the context of Peppermint Frappe being the kind of the eye of the storm. Mm. And knowing that after having watched the film is, is probably good <laughs> to remove it from that context. Yeah. Um, because it is a very tricky film that also sort of deals in um, contemporary politics in Spain, of course. Mm. But so, so what happened at Peppermint Frappe? So there, the chronology is very, very, you know, <laughs> it, it happened on the, on, in very, very little time, but basically the day before Peppermint Frappe was supposed to screen, 
in Paris, there was the General Assembly of the Film Industry Workers who called for the cancellation of the Cannes Film Festival, but also for a complete uh, transformation of the French film industry. And they, uh, Claude Lelouch was still in Paris because he was attending the protests. And he drove in his little sports car all the way from Paris to Cannes the very same day on Friday 17th to break the news to uh, Robert Favre-Lebray, uh, who was the director, the president of the Cannes Festival. He's the one who drove in his little Porsche from Paris to Cannes, begging for, for gas at different gas stations because it was impossible to get gas at the time. And he could not take the train because there were strikes. <laughs> so mm. he eventually arrived in Cannes on Friday evening and he was like, hey, the, the, the General Assembly decided that we should cancel the festival. So he was called a traitor by the president of the Canton Festival. And the next day, uh, there was, this sparked actually a debate because the debate moved from the, from the General uh, Assembly in Paris to Cannes, where most filmmakers were. And there's this line by Godard where he's like, I'm talking solidarity with students and workers. You're talking traveling in close-ups. You're a bunch of morons. And I think it, it, it does tell a lot about the the mentality of a lot of filmmakers who were already, some of them were protesting, some of them were still like agreeing. And the screening of Pippin Frappe that happened right after that uh, was probably the wildest moment of all of that festival where Carlos Sora didn't want his film to show, but it was too late to withdraw it from the competition. So he grabbed the curtain to keep it from being drawn. So he, and eventually, the curtain was too powerful for him. So then Godard and Geraldine Chaplin joined him in trying to hold the curtains down. Eventually it was still screened because a fight broke and uh, Godard lost his glasses in the fight. Uh, the, the movie was screened with the lights on. And then there was a debate that was absolutely not about the movie, even though that's what it was supposed to be, but it turned out to be a, uh, a, uh, uh, a debate about whether can the festival should go on and also like in the long term, what kind of future the French film industry should go towards and what kind of, it was just, everybody was just, you know, yelling about their, <laughs> their opinions and like what they thought French film should be. And eventually it turned yet again into a fist fight. Right after that, Alain René, Carlos Sora and Milos Forman decided to withdraw from the competition and that in turn, prompted Monica Vidi, Roman Polanski, Terence Young, and Louis Mal to resign from the jury. And the next day, the next morning, uh, Favre Lebray announced that the festival, so the president, Favre Lebray, announced that the festival was canceled. He announced it at 12 p.m. The problem was that since there was a massive strike and all around France, it was impossible to get gas and no trains were working. So a lot of people were stranded in Cannes. So it didn't do anything to improve the mood, but at least, you know, I, I feel like the screening of Frippe and Frappe was really kind of the, everything came together at that kind of apotheosis of like, just fight after fight breaking inside the screening room. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was pretty wild. And there's a, there's a, there are like, there's a picture, at least one of uh, Godard, Sora and Chaplin hanging onto the, to the curtains trying to bring it down. Incredible. I, I, did can at least serve everyone cheese sandwiches like the <laughs> fire festival i i don't even think they did so 
I mean, that's going to lead us into the film. Victor, thank you so much for giving us all that context. We hope that we're going to have you on soon. We, we would keep you on for Peppermint Frappe, but this isn't your pick. So next time you come no. on, we'll have you on <laughs> for for what we typically do with our guests is have them pick something and then we'll all watch it and then we hate on them. So Hell thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and educating us. We appreciate it. Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you. Did you know all that specific history um, when you picked this, Josh? So there are a, a few reasons why I knew about that. And they're mostly film related. One, the Bertolucci film, The Dreamers, that mm -hmm. came out in 2004. That is a sort of Jules and Jim uh, a, a menage a trois is actually centered around all of this. Then there's an Olivier Assayas film um, called Opre Me. Um, its English title is Something in the Air, which is, I guess, less literal than After May, but it is about the impact with students after all of this occurred. So in just encountering those films, I knew that May 1968 um, was a huge turning point in... French politics and that mm -hmm. the Cannes Film Festival was, uh, you know, as I said earlier, sort of an eye of the storm or at least a way to look at that. They're on Criterion Channel. They have essentially the Cannes Film Festival, at least ones that they have the rights to. They have a series called Cannes 68. There are some supplements. Some of the debates Victor was talking about are available for you hmm. to see, particularly one that's led by Truffaut and has Godard on the jury, or not on the jury, but on the panel. And they're not, <laughs> you know, Victor was talking about how they were at the forefront of all this and leading all this. Of course, they were like everyone's leaders, ostensibly. They're not even really getting along themselves. It's an interesting watch. You can really see their dynamic. And there's also another film, a documentary called Two in the Wave, that covers this period in their relationship pretty well too. Now, I did not know that Peppermint Frappe was uh, such a kind of touch point within this story. When I picked it, I picked it because I want to investigate Carlos uh, Sara more. I have seen a few of his films from the 80s, the dance trilogy that he did, and I found them fascinating. And they're films that I haven't revisited in a long time. So when I kind of had in my head that I wanted to do something from Can 68, I that jumped out at me. Now, we'll talk about why this is also such a Josh pick, too. <laughs> uh, specifically in the plot and some of the themes that it's after. Up front, we should get into what Peppermint Frappe is. I'm not really concerned about spoilers at all. Um, I don't think a lot of people have seen this. It is available on the Criterion channel in that series that I just pointed out. So if you are concerned, and it is a, mo a movie that has some twists and turns, ooh, very literally in its end. So stop it now, go watch it, and then come back to us because we're going to get into it. Andrew, it's a, it's a really sticky thicket of of not even plot but characters i'll say yeah. and themes 
Can you give us sort of a synopsis of it? Yeah, I mean, like, again, on paper, I'm not sure how much plot, meaty plot there is. Essentially, it's a obsession drama. I don't know how else to describe it. There's a lot of genres going on in here, which we can talk a bit about. But there's a middle-aged doctor. This is uh, set in contemporary Spain, I believe. Yeah. And there's a middle-aged doctor who reconnects with what seems to be an old, an old childhood friend or acquaintance. Or is it his... I, is it his brother's fiance? Um, confused by that because at first I thought it was just like his friend's wife, but then, like, I don't, after, I yeah. don't know. I, I like I saw something that said it was like his brother's fiance. I don't think Julian and Pablo are brothers. I think they're no, just like I, old friends who were who went to like the same Catholic school together. Yeah, that's what I lines. thought. But then when I was like researching it, it said something, and I was like, oh, I must have completely missed that because that's not what I got out of i i think that is a a fine thing to get confused about because relationships in this are very tenuously the connection finding it is is sort of difficult you'll find it either like in a flashback flash or in just like one line of dialogue and if you you know blink you might miss some very layered and complicated things that are happening here yeah, I, I would I would say that the, the the meat of the plot is that Julian meets his friend quote unquote, question mark Pablo's new younger fiance and becomes like a romantically and sexually obsessed with her is the only way I can really describe it to the point of distraction and there's a little bit of flirtation there and she sort of indulges him or toys with him a little bit. There's not much of plot. They sort of go out and do things and the three of them do things together. Meanwhile, sort of Julian's frustration about this, about the whole situation and about, let's say, and her inattainability, Elena is the fiance, I should say, he, he starts to mold or coerce or manipulate his um, the nurse, the groom, the nurse yeah. who works in his sort of home practice. I'm not, I'm not wasn't 100% clear whether he's like a GP. He seemed, he seems to maybe have like a pulmonary I think he's a- specialty. Why didn't I think he was like uh, like a radiologist or something? I thought he was a dentist. <laughs> so it's not clear. But he, he's a medical so, professional with yeah, an he's office, a medical his office in his home. Yeah. Um, and he has one nurse who's sort of his who's only apparently assistant or employee. And he sort of slowly coerces her into not only into having some kind of weird relationship with him, but into slowly becoming the woman Elena that he's obsessed with, but meanwhile the, the, the he's continuing to have interactions with Elena and uh, Pablo. So uh, I'm making him sound a little bit more confused than it is, but it does in some respects it is sort of a we watch these characters together in rooms interacting sort of movie. Like there isn't a lot of um, it's, at least until like the last maybe 15 minutes when it goes into full like psychological thriller slash mister murder mystery situation um, where the logistics of how things are accomplished are, are a little bit more keen. It's mostly a hangout movie, not in the sense of being casual, but in the sense of we're put into rooms with these characters to watch their very weird dynamic unfold. And it is a very weird dynamic. Kayla, there's one film that kept coming to mind. What was it? Well, for me, it was um, a mix of like Claire's Me and Love in the Afternoon. 
I think like just that obsession in Claire's knee, like even just him like watching her legs. Mm. I mean, that's just like literally Claire's yeah. knee. And the lust of love in the afternoon. Yeah, I, I see exactly what you're talking about. I think those films are they are definitely about their male protagonist's obsession. But this one, those films, I think, allow for the women to be a part of that obsession and narrative. And, you know, whether or not they're sort of icky, which they can be. We're, those are two Eric Romare films that we're talking about. They're both. Mm. Moral tales? Yeah, they're both moral tales. Yeah, I was going to say the thing, like, I definitely see the connection, but also, like, there's a streak of moralism to Romer that, like, right. is not, it's replaced with a kind of, like, grossness in this movie. But I think while Romare's and Romare and his characters are questionably questioning moral problems, this character absolutely does not but sarah is in yeah. that he's depicting it i i love those connections because i definitely didn't think of that my thing was there's um a point where anna and we should say that anna elena and the real the sort of germ of the obsession is a memory that julian has of the it's a good friday celebration that happens in uh catalanda that he has a memory of another doppelganger beating a drum and it's something that's really stuck in his mind that he's become obsessed with and when he sees elena he's that you know recalls to him this person it's all very vertigo to me and yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we well, should we should clarify that the same woman, the same actress, plays all three of those roles. Yeah, and it's Geraldine Chaplin who is just one of the like underrated actresses of every generation since she started acting, which this is one of her earliest and her first collaboration with Sarah, who was her, you know, lover, partner, lover, and, gross, and partner I gotta, for a long time. I got to give props to like hair and makeup because I didn't, I didn't went into this film completely cold, knowing nothing about the actors or the filmmaker. And I, it took me a good while to tumble to the fact that Anna is played by the same actress as Elena. Elena is what it's kind of like a, a metaphor almost to how like maybe they viewed the Americans at the time. Like she's blonde, she's tall, she's, confident charming like has all the charisma and then like anna is more she's more reserved she's more shy she's more just a very like normal the the type of woman who might be who at, at first blush would be susceptible to something like this at least to a man who might start a kind of sexual game like this right right um she seems maybe even younger like the the feel is that and she's you know no makeup and kind of no styling to whereas elena is like a, sort of like a fashion maven looking at all of her outfits like, god she's we, very we, she's very like italian mod 
flash yeah. mod uh 1960 like she feel this feels like a 1967 movie just looking at elena's like look yeah and you could be flipping the channels if this were to ever be shown on tv it's it was hard to find for a very long time and the print the uh transfer that's on criterion channel not needs great, yeah. work and the the subtitles need work um it's been released in blu-ray in other countries where it is uh more respected criteria needs to put out a disc of it i would love that but the point that you bring up kayla gets us to the politics of this and we are i, I sorry i don't mean to speak for you guys i am definitely not a political scholar of franco spain at all no <laughs> but i don't i don't think that you need to be you need to know that they're living under a, a fascist regime and that the ruling class is are the protagonists of this film and that their willingness to manipulate to possess other people is a good metaphor for living in a fascist state and this sort of fascination with the other culture and bringing the other culture to that state is perfectly realized in what kayla was talking about and that she is there are times that Geraldine Chaplin, who is Charlie Chaplin's daughter, breaks her Spanish and speaks her English in her, you know, UK accent and everything, that she is definitely an outsider in all of this, who is coming into the fold. And it's interesting because Elena is as much a manipulator to where is Anna is the the one who's very susceptible to it to the point where she gets uh, way in over her head, even though she's, God, there's a 20-minute stretch of this movie that is really rough with the grooming bit that Julian coerces her into drinking the titular drink, which we, we have to talk about that, and sexually assaults her it gets it and it's extended in the it's, film too and the funny thing is it's not that graphic it's just no. deeply uncomfortable right no yeah and it's not playing it for the drama of it it's playing it so that you understand how something like this happens in well it's i'm glad you brought up the political aspect though because like again i'm not a franco expert even remotely i don't think i could write out a Spain history timeline on, on a note card. But for me, like what I scribbled down was Pasolini when I was writing this, meaning yeah. that it hits the same vibe for me. I don't have to know. I think there are awesome things going on here, politically speaking. And, and I, I have some particular thoughts on like how fascism creates this like golden age fallacy and how Pablo is weirdly fetishizing like the, the school or boarding place where they grew up and the children's toys all around, like there's something going on there. But all that aside, like I think the movie works spectacularly well just on its own terms. I, I, I think of it the same way I think of like Pasolini's Greek myths and even Salo. Like I don't have to know, I don't have to be deeply enmeshed in 1960s Spanish politics or Italian politics in that case, but Spanish politics here to appreciate the filmmaking that's going on and to be pulled in by the story because it's a compelling enough story with enough weird stuff going on to make it interesting in its own right. But, but yeah, I'm sure there are like, there are layers here that as an American viewer in 2022, I'm, I'm sure I'm not getting. It was just kind of like 
gross and weird, especially when they were like looking at like all the other uh, women and he was like, you need Mm. to look that like you need to do all of that. And I wrote down in modern parlance, we would call what he's doing, negging her. Yeah. It's like negging her appearance and her habits really hard. When he starts doing her makeup, and uh, it, we should talk about the filmmaking too. Sara, I'm not that deep into him, and this has kind of kicked open a door for me, certainly, is known for nonlinear storytelling, and that is here in flashbacks and non-traditional narrative, I would call it, in a juxtaposition of images But I love the way he gets very close on something. And talking about the the negging, the grooming, there is a shot where he is putting on false eyelashes onto Anna that made me beyond uncomfortable for many reasons, mostly because it made my eyes hurt. I don't know how anyone does that. But yeah, he gets very close on these and it's, it's, the the metaphor is there in the beginning where he's cutting out magazine bits for a collage book of looks. So you already begin this film knowing that he has some sort of obsession with the female form and the way women on their own sort of uh, manipulate it and make it something else. But at one point, he after he's done doing her makeup to make it look exactly like Elena's, I said out loud i said okay scotty get her to dye her hair now and he definitely (laughs) plays scotty to judy and says you should try and dye your hair blonde (laughs) the lineage is probably more nebulous than i want to make it but he dedicates this film to louis bunuel and so you can see like l and uh de cremen um the a film where a man actually does this, but then the woman is actually replaced by a doll and doll parts because it's Louis Boomwell. Uh, you can see all of that and how it extends out to Boomwell's last film, that obscure object of desire, where he has two actresses playing one person. So sort of the inverse. It it's very vertigo to me. There's the ending is the 360 around two people, the the obsessed and the obsessee, who is now a blonde woman. We should really get into that ending, too. I Have we set it up enough, do you think, that people get a sense of what's happening? I think so. I Can we... I have a question for whoever about the ending, if anybody... Okay. Has... Okay. Do you think the drummer was Elena, or do you think it was just another woman who like checked everything off for him in that way? Or is it even Anna? True. Yeah. So the 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 differentiator between this and Vertigo, other than you know Vertigo being bifurcated itself narratively, is that in the end, Anna sort of becomes the one in control but sh- but it's a it's a control that she's inherited from him mm-hmm. and i'm not entirely sure and i love the question because that is kind of the question of the film and that is the piece of suspense that keeps you throughout it because you keep getting clues that maybe it's anna it's elena 
because she looks exactly like Elena, but she's got this like scar or kind of uh, callus or something from the drumming. And Anna has that. So I, I, I'm not like, I'm fine to take it at not face value and sort of not figure it out because yeah. I like the ambiguity of it. Andrew, what were you thinking? Yeah, I don't think it really matters. Like it, I, I, I take it as whatever it's being presented. Julian seems certain, but Julian is delusional. Like he seems certain that it was Elena. For, for a bit, I thought that maybe the drummer girl was somebody Julian saw in his childhood, which would make it even weirder. But it seems like he, he saw her recent enough that he thinks it might have actually been her. And she, she completely denies it. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I think part of what the film is doing is showing that Julian's, I think we can call it sociopathy, yeah. has nothing to do really with, I mean, it's all, he's focused on Elena slash Anna and the drummer girl, and he, it's all about them in his mind, but his sociopathy like predates them. I don't think it's an un, it's a coincidence that the film opens with Julian, like the credits occur of Julian making this scrapbook, making right. his own Frankenstein's bride out of mm. the models that he sees around him, assembling them, cutting the body parts. And what do we see him doing as a doctor? He's taking x-rays of body parts. Like there's mm. there's a weird clinical aspect to that where he's not seeing these women as people, he's seeing them as objects that he's seeing a, a gestalt woman that he could assemble from the various components that have tantalized him and obsessed him. So I think like in a way, Elena or the drummer girl catalyzes something and makes him go down this extremely much more darker path. But it was always there from the beginning. He's a creep, and he always was. He's a major creep. So, how do you guys feel about locked being locked with a major creep for an hour and a half? Mm. I, mean, I, I like Nightcrawler, so <laughs> I don't know what that says. But <laughs> I, I love movies where horrible people are the protagonists. Kayla, what about you? It's kind of like like a train wreck. Like I I like to to watch it, but like through like you know not not fully, but I still like to know like what's happening and just have like a little bit, but not like the whole thing. So yeah, you don't you don't want to be in the train wreck, but you certainly can't look away from it. And in one of the tricks he does in in narrativizing his themes is never letting you com be completely sure about what Julian is doing or is about to do. It's like, I'm just watching this thing. Like, what is he? What? Why? Why did you just do? What are you doing? And then very slow leak of information leads up to the final 10 minutes, which culminate in a party with this fucking drink that he keeps making that looks that can't be good right the it's titular just, frappe well it's not even a cocktail it's really just is for i watched it very carefully i looked it up online and there's a uh -huh. couple different variations on this but if you watch very carefully how he makes the drink and how various characters drink, it's just creme de menthe fresh diets that's all it is yeah gross like uh, and then well <laughs> i was gonna say that's gross but i've drunk like way weird i've dr i drink like <laughs> sambuca over ice i drink uh, chartreuse over ice. I drink a really, I've drunk really weird liqueurs over ice. So I can't like be too hard on them, but it is, it's very, it's very mint. I don't know why anybody would want that much mint. 
in my mind, I was imagining, like, I think it's at, like, McDonald's or something where they just have those, like, frappes. Like, with, like, oh, and, it's like, a shamrock shake. It's the yeah. Italian 1960s version of a shamrock shake. Yeah, like, I was imagining just, like, whipped cream and, like, chocolate sauce. And then <laughs> well, it's- frappe, frappe implies that, I thought. But it's, this I is just like liqueur over ice. It's crushed iced, yeah. yeah. And at one point, I love how he implies Julian's violent nature when he's crushing ice and he doesn't have a blender, so he puts it like in a towel and just hits a column several times, and it's just like, oh my god, what the fuck, dude, are you doing? Um, is, yeah. But but on the same time, like part of we could talk about the climax here, like Julian engineers. The, situation i mean it seems to be deliberate it's not just something he seizes on he, he does something to the drinks right yes you watch him carefully he 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 doses the drinks that elena and pablo are going to take and he keeps his own separate and anna so he so you see that start with anna but he seems to have given her some sort of sedative because she does wake up so here's what happens is he the whole time elena keeps saying who's this nurse you keep talking about you know what's he, this nurse and she's kind of might be just playing and jabbing at him about having a romantic relationship other than the one she's casually alluded to with him and he's engineered this time where he's going to get them to meet elena um so they start and they're at the the dilapidated villa that is like somewhat remodeled and he gives them what we will find out is a a poisoned peppermint frappe because they go out and he starts cleaning up after them like pouring the frappe drink back into the bottle and I, or the creme de menthe and I, I kept thinking, wow, he's so cheap. He's pouring the liquor back in the bottle. Because it's that sort of film where you're not really sure what anyone's up to. You don't understand the motivation at the time. Then we peek in and we see Anna, Anna, in bed with a blonde wig tossed on the other side of the room and the drum set with the uh, drumsticks. I really couldn't think of the word drumsticks. And Elena and Pablo run out and something starts to happen to pablo you think is he having a heart attack but she's she's riding the bike and he's running and then she starts to act weird and so they both collapse and julian is following them in their car and it is in that moment you realize at least that's where i realized that he he has he has poisoned them to kill them when he in death becomes her style <laughs> wedges their dying bodies into the car or at least sedated bodies into the car in order to roll them off a cliff nice He's, spectacular crash too it's such a good crash what we know the information we're giving given is that pablo's shoe is left behind and then after the very spectacular crash, Julian goes back and he finds everything cleaned up. And Julian's missing shoe is in the fire. And Anna has bought into it and says, I know what's happened. I'm going to help you. 
and then it, eventually it goes into this very kind of wild ending where it does the 360 around the lovers but before that she is drumming that drum as if she is a drummer very differently from how elena did it very poorly earlier in the film so there is a little bit of an implication that anna knows how to drum a drum there but again it's sort of so dreamlike and so metaphorical that i don't know that that yeah is, i don't think it really ma- is to be made i don't think that's like a big tell or anything it's just it, it adds to the heightened weirdness the way the, the movie ends with sort of a, this insane crescendo mm. of like psychosexual weirdness I will brag that I tumbled almost immediately to what Julian was doing. The minute I saw him pour those separate drinks, I was like, oh, crap. He's probably yeah. going to kill them. Kayla, did you too? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was not on that way. Well, I mean, a little bit. I think I, at first, I just thought it was just normal. But then when I saw them running out and then she, like, I could just, I, I knew that it was probably that that had caused some shit was going down but it's interesting that you mentioned like julian's propensity to violence because the way that he murders these people it isn't a gory i guess it's violent in the sense that the car crash is violent but he does it in such a way as to like almost to fool himself into thinking that he has clean hands like he, he he's poison and then staging a car crash it's like those are subtle ways of committing murder that is not a gory violent like hands-on kind of way of committing murder. Mm-hmm. So do you, I, I feel as if it is all spurred by uh, Elena's mockery of him. Just a few scenes before that um, really poking him. And I think it gets to part of the point of the film in the, utter lack of compassion, empathy, sympathy that the ruling class has for others. And it's all just for their gain. And the way he methodically plans and executes their murder because of that, a very seemingly kind of just tossed off, you know, poking at a friend of yours uh seems dead on to what Sara's trying to get at here. Do you guys see what I'm talking about or think I'm following a different track? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Elena's whole demeanor is sort of a little unusual and difficult to follow. She's very Sagittarius. She's uh <laughs> mm-hmm. she's like a, a different sort of character, like when Julian first sort of makes romantic implications towards her or movements towards her would have sort of shut that shit down. She's like, I've got a fiance. We can't do this. Go away. But Elena kind of toys with him a little bit. Not a little bit. I don't think so. She, he, uh, they, he takes her on a tour and it's very gorgeously shot. And there's this wistful music behind it. And they're having some sort of connection as they're kind of touring the history of Mm -hmm. the area. But they do sit down to have some drinks. And at one point, he's like, why did you get involved with an older man like Pablo? And she says something. And he says, she says something about, like, it 
it could have been you. And he says, you would have married me. And she says something like, sure, why not? But she, I mean, she says that sort of flippantly, and then her mood is kind of all over the place. She alternately pushes and pulls him away. Yeah. And that, like, that seems to set, and, and not saying that to, like, make, to put blame on Elena, more just trying to say that, like, her whole demeanor sort of puts Julian on edge. And, and the, the, there is that moment at the villa, that partially restored villa, where she definitively says, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. Go away. Right. And it just goes to show the the power this man thinks he has over all situations that he does not understand that. And that even I don't think you're putting the blame on her at all. Like it is such a portrait of him and being locked within his vision of everything that's happening that he him think blaming her and her actions is a part of it. But to in, him, to in him reality, that is like. Damn, that moment is like a grand, horrible break in their relationship that he has viewed like as something that way more than she viewed it. I did wrote that right down here that there's something going on about Julian's sort of masculine inadequacy. The way just from the the great performance from the actor, the way he feels like perpetually awkward and unsure of himself and maybe a little bit sort of shrunken into himself, especially whenever he's in the room with Pablo. Who's a much taller? He's like a taller presence. Mm -hmm. He's a little bit more outgoing. I'm not. I don't get 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 100 clear on what Pablo does for a living. He's in finance or banking or something. He has a more like uh, economically prosperous job. Being a doctor is almost kind of like low bougie in this film, the way it's sort of presented. Um, but yeah, like, and but Julian is so like so. Without ever saying it out loud, there's no lines that convey it, but the performance conveys somebody who is deeply, like, feels deeply inadequate. And there's something going on there about how, like, fascism preys on a sense of m masculine ideas and masculine inadequacy in some way. And I love how that manifests Both individually itself. and nationally, I should say. Yeah, and it manifests itself in routine. And this inadequacy, the way he's able to show his power is through routine. Like, watching him methodically get ready. Did you notice that he puts his shirt on and then sprays his deodorant? Yeah, I, I, saw I don't think that was unusual at the time, though. That's crazy to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then that nullifies my point. But he's still a person who... Is very methodical in everything he does because he can exert a, a, some control in those areas of his life. And of course, that control is what ultimately ends up killing this couple. And it's They're... the first things that he does with Anna, right? He brings her into his back rooms. Like he takes her out of the office space and into the domestic space and immediately starts giving her <laughs> completely unsolicited advice about her appearance and habits. And there's a moment where, like, he makes her a drink. He makes them both the, the frappes. And then when they have a second round, he's like, why don't you go make me one? Mm. Like, the control, the, the desire to control is there almost immediately. But because, I don't know, something about Julian is such a, like, a, a such a, he's a little bit unctuous. He's a little bit awkward. Like, he doesn't necessarily read as, like, hyper-threatening, but it's there. 
and he's unattractive compared to, and this is not a dig on the actor. I think it's there in the text and it's the way the actor sort of holds his face that he's just not an attractive personality at all. We should say Jose Luis Lopez Vasquez is the plays Julian. And I agree. I think it's such a marvelous performance because he's able to be this naked psychopath. I don't know if we ever really answered the, I wrote this down too. It said the big question, why at the end does it seem like Anna is a willing participant? We can argue about like how much what happens to her is consensual and what degree she's being coerced. But I think like part of what makes the ending so uncomfortable is that there's a feeling that Anna has completely bought in to whatever weird relationship this is and has embraced it enthusiastically. I think if you look at it as a metaphor for people living in a fascist state, I think it is, has to be much easier to go along, to help clean up. Yeah. There are certain types of people who, for whom following is much easier. And then that gives them the control and then it escalates from there and you end up living in Nazi Germany or 2022 United States or, you know, name wherever, you know, fascism is starts to rise. It, it, it's, but does it live and die by that metaphorical reading? Like, does the movie make any sense as just as a psychological drama? As a think? psychological drama, don't you think uh, that holds true for many people too? Especially I mean, those who might feel a sort of placelessness that Anna appears to. Those who feel as if maybe they're lacking in anonymity or in any agency because Anna is sort of the blank slate, right? At least that's how she's portrayed. We know she has family, but I think back to Madeline and Judy, right? I'm, in Vertigo, I'm thinking, why does Judy write the letter confessing the sins and then tear it up when she knows exactly what's about to happen and then is an active participant until the very end? And in the, you know, on a surface level, they're talking about love. It's not that. It's not that. It's that there's, it, it fills a gap, I believe. And, and I think it's also just, it's very comfortable. I mean, exactly. it's yeah. harder to, to like potentially risk losing everything and also not having anybody with you as well like not having anybody listen to you and it's easier just to continue on and act as if everything's normal when it's not but and when once she's in too deep it's her livelihood too like this is her right. job it's not clear that she can even get another job so like she's risking a lot by resist if she tries to resist julian at any point and don't forget there's a shift in Julian and Anna's dynamic. There's the point where he hasn't responded to her in a bit and she has a key to the house and lets herself in. And he comes in and is just in incredibly upset. And she says, when I'm out, you want me in, but when I'm in, you want me out. So she has built some sort of life 
in this really fucked up relationship um, that she's hanging on to. And when she sees that she has an opportunity to seal the deal, she takes it. Interesting point because you don't, you don't really get close to anyone but Julian. How do you, how do you feel about that focal point? I don't know how much I want to like get into this, but I'm like almost thinking about how like you only really see like the male viewpoint of relationships too. Like you really only hear about what they're experiencing and stuff and like they're right and they're true and all of that. We don't really get to see much of how she's, how she really is. And yeah, just, I just feel like she's very like suppressed and, that's kind of how it is a lot of the time anyway, where it's like the males, like it's their world and we're just riding along for it. I think that's his thesis of yeah. the film. He's just it, in his own world uh, and he just wants everybody to comply and live by his rules. If we are let in with Anna, Elena, even Pablo more, then the film has a different point. Mm -hmm. And the point he's trying to make is what is the process by which you comply? What is the process by which you usurp power and miswield it? Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, on that very lovely note, <laughs> would you guys like to play a game? All right, now we're on to the rules of the game where we are going to do the known for or the IMDb game, a game that's been around for a while, but I've directly stolen from the podcast. This had Oscar buzz. So here's how it works. We each have an actor or actress that we are going to give another lens person to guess the top four on their IMDb generated by a very mysterious algorithm somewhere in IMDb that no one can figure out. The, the premise is that you take guesses. Please let us know beforehand if there's TV or any animated work. Once you get two guesses wrong, we will give you the years of your remaining films. And after that, we'll just give you all kinds of hints. So the the addition that we are doing are winners of the acting awards at the Cannes Film Festival. All right. I think, Andrew, I am going to give to you. And I have a list of people here. I'm going to give you Juliette Binoche, who won for one of our favorite films, I believe. Yes. Certified copy. Mm, yeah. All right. But so, certified copy is not one of the four. Am I getting that hint early on or no? That is not a hint whatsoever. Okay. So what do you think the top four is for Juliette Binoche? I will tell you right now, no TV. So the staircase is not there and no animated. Mm. Okay. My first guess is going to be blue. No. Okay. And let's what? go. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Just remember, um, it's an IMDb 
algorithm. Right. I'm going to go for the American wildcard and say Godzilla. Nope. Oh. <laughs> Which I totally would have guessed, too. All right. So uh, let me give you the years. Mm-hmm. 1996. 2000. Yeah, you got that one. Okay. Yep. Sorry. Didn't mean to jump in. No, that's her Oscar win. Yeah. Um, 2000. 2014 and 2017 are the remaining ones. 2014, 2017, and 2000? Mm-hmm. 2014 might be Clouds of Sils Maria? It absolutely is. Yeah. Okay. And then 2000 and 2017. So uh, is 17 Let the Sun Shine In? I wish it was. It is definitely not, and it's not a film that I knew that she was in. It is a film that had some controversy around it because of casting. Oh, um, it was the Ghost in the Shell live action she, movie. She plays Doctor Ule in Ghost in the Shell, which I don't even think is a character of the anime. Ah, uh, yeah, I don't know what she's doing in there, but I'm intrigued. Um, because I'm I'll putting watch. that in the Godzilla basket. It is the Godzilla the ba basket. <laughs> so your final one is an Oscar, uh, major Oscar nominee in 2001, premiered in 2000, nominated for Best Picture, Actress, Actress Supporting, Screenplay, and Score. Oh, wow. Um, the timing is close to cachet, but that can't be cachet. Nope. Um, it stars someone in the news now. Oh, Chocolat. Yep. Oh. You got it. Okay. She was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role. The other one was uh, the supporting role went to uh, Judy Dench nomination. Oh, speaking it of did... Oscar movies that sort of went down the memory hole. Absolutely. A very weird Weinstein, you know, kind of politicking his film into the Oscars, a film that is remembered as being nominated for Oscars and no one knows why. And I won't mention the actor's name. Who's in it? Y'all know who I'm talking about. Um, now, who wants to guess next? I can go. All right. I believe, Andrew, you're giving to Kayla, right? Yeah. So I'm going with uh, Shelley Duvall. Who won in 1977, but I won't say for what. Um, so this one is a good uh, a good four. I will say that no television, no animation, um, and I will give one other hint in that it's all of these movies occur were released within about four years of each other. Uh, my first one is going to be The Shining. Yep. Maybe Nashville. No. Okay. Um, three women. Yes, the film that she won for. Okay. So, around that time, Roxanne? No. Okay. So, the other remaining two are 1977 and 1980. Is 1977 Annie Hall? Yes. Good job. So weird. So weird. I guess it's on there because Best Picture, very popular film. But, like, she literally has two 30-second scenes in it. She yeah. does make a bit of an impact. I always. barely remember that, but... So one more, 1980. 
you were going down the right road with your very first guess. And that might be an actual, like, not a good clue. It might be a misdirect. Okay, this is going to be... Okay, I think I know what it is because I I remember watching it when I was a kid. Is it like the the live action Popeye? Yes, sure. <laughs> Robert Altman. Yeah. Sure, the fuck is Robert yeah. Altman's very underrated Popeye, and I'm not being contrarian or whatever with that. That is crazy a sets. Great crazy movie sets. that still exists in Malta Islands, mm-hmm. so you can still go Popeye Island. Uh, <laughs> the, and she's the... so good. As... Wait, wait, are you serious? Did you really go? To visit yeah. the Popeye sets? You can go visit the Popeye sets. Oh, and wow. they've kept them up. It's like a tourist destination. Okay. Tired going to Tunisia to visit the Star Wars sets. <laughs> wired going to Malta to visit the Popeye sets. Yes. <laughs> and I'm so wired. I want to go. I want to go. And she's so good as uh, olive oil. She's good in all of these films. You know. Great. Okay. So now I get to guess. And it's Kayla giving it to me. Yes. Okay, so we're going to do Kirsten Dunst, and let me go. Okay, so all of these films, I feel like you will probably know. I cannot say the one that she won for. Is there any TV in there? There is no. There is no TV. Okay, no TV in the top four, which... Makes sense. So the one she went won at Cannes for is Melancholia. Correct. Yep. All right. And the other two, I mean, the other three, two of them are the same year. And one of them is just like a random year, but it's, it's near, it's in like a 10 year span of the other two. Okay. I think maybe that might have confused me more (laughs) no it's okay so if i mm, spider-man 2 spider-man okay so that's only one wrong spider-man was 2002 I don't know what other films she would have been in in 2002. So I'm going to guess that that isn't the year. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. Is one of them Virgin Suicides? No. Okay. Can I have the years of the other two? 1994. Oh. Little Women and Interview with a Vampire. Yep. Oh, what what a weird... (laughs) No Maria Antoinette? Like, it's a weird four, right? No. She's, well, I, isn't she only, she only plays like the young version of, of uh, one of the characters in Little Women, doesn't she? Yeah, isn't she Amy? Mm-hmm. Wait. Is I she, think, um... Wait. Amy, yeah. Beth. Who dies? Is no, she Amy. the one that dies? Amy, yeah. Amy's the uh, one who's... Yeah. All right. Well, That's a random... Although that that little woman has it's like has a huge humanness, so um, I did have other more difficult ones. I would do a bonus round, but I don't. <laughs> I did wanna... too. I had, I had Timothy Spall, which the four of those are really tough. Like they are not. There's no Harry Potter in here. Let's put it that way. Okay, okay, okay. One bonus round. Let me guess, Timothy Spall. Okay, okay. let me just do it. 
Mr. Turner. Yes. Spencer. No. What the fuck? That's all I have. Um, are there other Mike Lee ones? Uh, yes. That's all I'll say. Yes. Secrets and Lies. Yes. You will never get the other two. <laughs> are they like Timothy Spall is 14th in some Hollywood blockbuster thing? Yeah, kind of. No, not, not not 14th, but like not. You don't remember him being in one of these. All right. No. Give me the years. Uh, 2007 and 2001. Is he an iris? He might be, but that's not one of them. All right. This bonus round, we have to end. What are they? <laughs> what are they? Vanilla Sky. I don't even remember him being in that. What? <laughs> and Sweeney Todd. He's in Tim Burton's no. Sweeney Todd. Nope. Would not have never gotten, gotten those. That's why I didn't do that one. <laughs> ah, Timothy. We never know what you're going to do next. All right. Perfect. Well, let's move on to one more thing. Every episode, we round out with one more thing that we've been enjoying since the previous episode. I am going to have Kayla go first. Kayla, what's one more thing from you and your socials? Okay, so I've been watching this show on E! called Welcome Home with Nikki Glazer, which if you don't know who she is, she's a stand-up comedian from St. Louis who moved home the start of COVID. And yeah, she is just like chronicling her life in St. Louis. And I don't like, I didn't really, like I knew who she was prior to the show, but I really am only watching just because it's like around here and I want to like see how they show like, st louis and stuff yeah. um so yeah i've been watching it and it's just like they're like half an hour every week and you know they're fine but yeah they go to the grove like i recognize that like they're walking around the grove um they go to her parents like they live in somewhere in west county or something like that so like that i can't tracks. But yeah, I can, you know, it's just it, <laughs> that I, I, I'm pretty sure she lives not to be creepy, but it looks like somewhere in the Central West End or at least like when they show um, where she is, like it looks at, even though it could like they could just be like, be, be honest. Have you Google Street did this? <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> no. I'm just, thinking, just like based off of that, like it looks like it would it would be be somewhere over there but also they could just be like it she could be living in like another place and they could just be like yeah exteriors yeah mm. I, you know yeah but st louis all of our neighborhoods are very easily definable so i'm i'm gonna guess you're right so fans of the lens go stop nikki glazer i'm gonna cut that out no don't go do that that's terrible and where can people find you kayla so I'm on Letterboxd. It's just my name, K-A-Y-L-A McCullough. And yeah. Perfect. I'll go next. I'm Joshua Ray. You can find me at Crispy Retinas on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. I always forget about Letterboxd. And it's the one I use the most. Okay. I am not... This is not a full-hearted endorsement. I have been keeping up with HBO's fictionalized version of The Staircase. It is 
Antonio Campos's um, adaptation or behind the scenes making of the documentary. So you get, if you are familiar with the case, you're going to know all of the steps, but then it's also about the making of the documentary. I don't know that it's, it's good. I think there are some very big problems with it in tone. It will move from being a very acidic, cynical stealth satire, I'll say, and then have several scenes where they play out the suppositions of, of ways Michael Peterson's wife could have died in, um, in very painful and very agonizing ways. And Colin first plays Michael Peterson to a T has his I, mannerisms, his vocal. I am stuck on Colin first with an American accent. How is that even possible? Like, I can't imagine Colin first with an American accent. I don't know how Colin Firth, it, like he disappears in it. And especially if you've seen The Staircase and are familiar with Michael Peterson. And that's not necessarily always a, a, a great thing, but it is a full body performance. Tony Collette plays his wife, Kathleen, who died on the titular staircase. Anyway, this is all lead up for me to say Parker Posey <laughs> plays the villain and when I found out that she was playing the prosecutor Frida Black, I knew what I was in, in store for. Parker Posey is, is from the South, so has a Southern streak in her to begin with. Leans into it so hard that it is, on one hand, very obviously a takedown of this woman and on the other hand she seems to really know who this person is and the words that antonio campos and his team put into her mouth i don't know why she's not more of a, a memeable twitter sensation maybe no one's watching this but i'm endorsing that someone make me a supercut of parker posey in the staircase is she doing like okay so i am not a true crime person and i i'm only glancingly familiar with this case is she doing like full william jennings bryan like i'm not a big city lawyer kind of thing but what is she doing <laughs> you just did it so in the documentary she frida black really gives herself away as a bigot who uses Michael Peterson's bisexuality and their supposed open relationship, his relationship with his wife, against him in the most deplorable way, mm. in preying on the jury's innate bigotry. And Parker Posey does that really well. <laughs> Very well. So, yeah. That's, that's my endorsement is actually a request. And then Andrew, what's one more thing from you? So I've kind of a generalized thing in honor of Memorial day. So one thing I like do every year is I watch Terrence Malick's the thin red line on Memorial day, which is today the day we're recording. I started doing that when the criterion Blu-ray came out a few, several years ago, and I just do it every year, like habitually on this day. 
And I'm endorsing that not to say you should go watch Terrence Mount's The Thin Red Line, which you absolutely should because it's a freaking masterpiece. But seconded, I am endorsing the idea of annual traditions in media consumption. Um, cool. Christopher Lee famously like read the entirety of the Lord of the Rings trilogy every year, like is his annual tech thing that he did to revisit it. And I'm doing, I'm presenting this as sort of the kind, the anti Pauline Kale's take, right? Like she famously said that she never rewatched any movies. I feel like great movies can be rewatched a thousand times and whether it's movies or books or whatever it is that you love, I, like encourage people to find something that they can do every year as a ritual and just something that is rich enough that they can soak in it over and over and over again, find new things. And I'm literally going to do that after we finish this podcast. And I'm really excited for it to turn up the volume as, as Terrence Malick suggests in the criterion notes, turn up the volume as loud as possible. As loud as possible. I love that. And where can people find you? I'm at AYAT76 on Letterboxd and at Arachnophiliac on Twitter. And you can also read my reviews and everybody's reviews, Joshua's and Kayla's and many of our contributors at The Lens. All right. That's our second episode in the can winners, even though I picked a non-winner. No one won that year except Carlos Sara and Geraldine Chaplin for hanging from theater curtains very on brand you for you pick like the weird (laughs) of course but next episode in two weeks we will be back with andrew's pick of (laughs) which is roland jaffe's the mission um a film that has kind of that i remember absolutely adoring when i saw it years and years ago and has kind of vanished down the memory hole along with roland jaffe's career in general um, so I'm really excited to revisit that and we'll sort of look at how can sort of changed post 60s in the 70s and 80s. Perfect. And you can watch that for free on Canopy, but it's also available to rent on all major platforms. And with that, we're on a mission to the mission. <laughs>